started. Father, we thank you so much for just the, um, the opportunities that Patricia and Lance have had. Um, Lord, uh, Lance with his neighbor and just um, someone who has been familiar with um, at least uh, some of the truths of Christianity. Uh, and yet, thank you. Thank you so much for the, the places that Lance is able to take him and um, the Ephesians 1 and 2 and even looking ahead to First Peter, I just pray that you would bless those discussions, that it would, um, you would grow this man if he is yours or if he is not, that you would save him. Lord, we pray for Patricia's opportunity with this gal, Nadine. Lord, we pray that um, you would uh, help Nadine to digest um, the scriptures. Um, Lord, if, if there is a lack of familiarity, if, um, Lord, that, that, that can be daunting. So we just pray that you would illumine her mind and that you would grant her understanding and that you would grant her grace to see you, Lord Jesus, um, that she might know you. Thank you for the opportunity that Patricia has. And, and just pray, thank, thank you for answer prayer and praying for this lady before and just the interest there. We pray that that is the work of your spirit. And um, Lord, we do pray for this morning as we come to thinking about your character as we have been. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would understand your character, um, not in a merely intellectual way, but in such a way that that, that knowledge um, surprises us, uh, changes our hearts, grows our affections, and uh, Lord, leads to worship. So we just pray that that would be the result this morning, that you, Spirit, would work on our hearts through your word, um, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, turn to Exodus 34, our... Uh, verse we've been launching from and thinking about is God is uh, in the midst of the aftermath of the golden calf incident, uh, talking and attaching to his, his name, um, his personal name, Yahweh, and attaching to that name, this character. So here's God proclaiming his own character, and you just can't lose sight of that. Like, if we want to talk about God's character, well, how does... What does God himself focus on? And that's kind of why we've been spending so much time in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. I'll go ahead and read it to get us started. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So we've talked about God as merciful and gracious, or compassionate and merciful, gracious, um, slow to anger, his, really his patience. Um, we talked the last couple times about his faithfulness and then his loyal kindness, which is this idea that's translated often as steadfast love or loyal love, or in the NASB, loving kindness. Uh, and then, really, that idea of uh, loyal kindness is, is mentioned again at the beginning of verse 7, keeping loyal kindness for thousands, either for thousands of people or thousands of generations. There's interpreters kind of go both ways on that, but regardless, God's abundant uh, loyal kindness. So, what is the next character quality that God lists and proclaims about himself? 
Nope. Yeah, that would be that would probably be uh, what we eat, uh, faithfulness. So probably um, um, so loving kindness and truth is probably what yours says. And that we looked at faithfulness before uh, before we looked at uh, loyal kindness. So we've finished with loyal kindness. What's our next uh, character quality? Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, that's kind of interesting um, in, in many ways as we'll explore it, but we're going to camp on that. But that is how God proclaims himself, and he's proclaiming his character. The next thing he goes to is forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, to really grasp the weight of what God is saying, um, we need to understand or remind ourselves of something we've already talked about, um, the goodness of God, and also in light of the goodness of God, the nature of sin. So before we can really understand the weight of what God is saying here, um, you, we, we need to see God's goodness and how that relates to sin. And we've done this before. We did it a few weeks ago. Um, someone go ahead and turn to 1 John 1, 5 through 6. And when they, someone has that, go ahead and read it. 1 John 1, 5 through 6. Yeah, so there, and we looked at this first before, and we we're talking about God's goodness. Um, really, it's that he gives a picture there. God is light, no darkness. So God himself is absolutely morally pure and is, in fact, the standard of moral purity within himself. So there is no standard of moral purity outside of who God is. He is the standard. Uh, but he is absolutely pure, which entails... Um, as Psalm 5.4, you can turn there if you want, um, but Psalm 5.4 uh, really expresses this idea that um, evil can't dwell with God. It's not that God doesn't prefer for evil to dwell with him, it's that it can't happen, okay? God, and it's, it's like matter and antimatter, it's going to uh, it's gonna, it create a devastating explosion if it happens. Um, so evil can't dwell with God. Um, God abhors evil. Uh, even if you were to think back to Romans 12, 9, when we were talking about God's love, and God's love is sincere, what does it say? He abhors what is evil and holds fast to what is good. So that just reminds us the, the backdrop, God's goodness, he cannot dwell with evil, cannot happen. So then you start asking a question, you know, these terms that Exodus 34 talks about, uh, iniquity and transgression and sin, um, and you, you're really asking, well, what do those terms mean? And along with that, we ask the question, what is the essence of sin? What is it? Um, and to, to get, the be I think, the best passage to really understand, the, before we talk about God forgiving sin, you need to understand, well, what's the nature of sin, and how does this relate to God's goodness? I think the best passage to really get a handle on what sin is at its core is Romans 1, 18 through 23. So the ladies from the women's Bible study 
have a, uh, um, a uh, they're ahead of the curve on this one because they spent some time in it this last week. Uh, go to Romans 118 through 23. And again, we're just at, we're trying to understand if God forgives iniquity and transgression of sin, well, okay, we, we understand God's goodness, or at least we have pictures and declarations of God's goodness. But now it's like, okay, in light of that, what is the nature of evil? What is the nature of sin in particular? Uh, so that we can understand this notion of God forgiving um, sin. So um, someone go ahead and read Romans. We keep coming back to this passage. It is one of those passages that is just foundational. And I think in this case, it's foundational for our understanding of what sin is at its core. So Romans 118 through 23, someone go ahead and read that. Okay, so we know this passage is addressing uh, uh, the unrighteousness and that word ungodliness is more the idea of impiety or lack of devotion to who God is. Okay, so those are kind of the synonyms for sin, if you will, in this passage. But then Paul goes on to say, well, okay, let's, if, if, how does that work? What is the core? What is the the, the, the nature of what sin is and does, and how does Paul describe it? Yeah, suppression of truth. So that's what uh, um, ungod, uh, that's what the impiety or un, lack of devotion to God, the true God and unrighteousness are going to do, they're going to suppress the truth. The truth about what? Who God is. And in what way um, does that manifest itself according to the rest of the passage? Okay, yeah, God, not giving him the proper honor, and instead what happens? Yeah, and what word is used? Um, there's a particular word that gets used for, okay, instead of giving God the proper honor and worship and glory, uh, what do they do instead? They worship, and there's a particular word that talks about what they're doing. At least in ESV. Well, I mean, it's in, they're in Greek. But. There it is. Exchange. Exchange. Exchanging the glory of God. And the glory of God is not just we're giving God glory, but the manifestation of his divine attributes, right? Because that's what he's talking about. Like in the creation, we can see um, God's eternal power and glory, his, 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 you know, um, his, his divine nature. 
So you can see God's glory on display, but you take that, which is the glory of the incorruptible God or the imperishable God, the ever-living God, and then what you exchange, that beauty, that wonder, um, that satisfying uh, reality of who God is for his creatures, and instead of basking in that and reflecting that back to God, there's the exchange for the creature, which is derivative from God, is going to die. Um, There's no comparison between the worth and value of the uh, imperishable God and the perishable creation. But right there, I think Paul would is arguing that's the core. If we want to talk about what unrighteousness is, or if you want to talk about what sin is at its core, it's the exchange. Um, and it's dreadful. Um, it's the a complete inversion of values. Um, and uh, so if we think about that, now, now let's think about that even a little bit more. So this exchange... Um, is it personal or impersonal? Would be kind of a, what's that? What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, worship by its nature is personal. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you could call, in this case, it's a culpable carelessness. But in this case, the argument of Paul is saying, this is intentional. Everyone knows that God is. You know, at some level, they don't know all of his attributes. We talked about this before when we looked at this passage, right? But they do know uh, his divine nature and his eternal power. And that's enough uh, to, should be an, enough to drive people to worship God, which is a very personal thing. So that's, when we think about sin, it's not like impersonal. It's not just like, um, you know, a friend of mine, and I say it this way sometimes for the pulpit, you know, characterize it this way. It's not just doing naughty things, right? It's not just breaking some even abstract law, right? Like you can kind of think about, okay, I broke the speed limit or I broke this infraction from our legal code. Well, yeah, okay, that's illegal and that's wrong or whatever. You know, I broke the legal code, but that's still abstract to us. When we think about sin, it is not just law-breaking, although it is that. It is personal. Um, it's, uh, it, it is the ex- that's why I like that language of exchange. It's personal. You're exchanging what's some, the, the infinite beauty of who God is, and he, does, he, is, it, he is right to have that worship reflected back to himself. Um, and that's what he's created us to do, uh, but in the exchange, uh, it's dreadful because um, it's personal. It's a personal offense. Uh, it's a slap. You're dishonoring uh, the most worthy and honorable being in existence. You're slapping God in the face. You're spitting on him. Um, that, it's treason. Right it is is you know you try to think of these these terms that show it's it's personal, um, so that all that to say is like when we think about sin because we're 
all, all of this is, why are we talking about this? Why are we talking about sin? I thought we were talking about God. Well, because God is saying he, in Exodus 34, 7, he is a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Well, okay, to feel the force of that, you need to understand, one, God's goodness, he is light in and of himself, cannot dwell with darkness, cannot. Um, and not only that, but when we talk about the, what the core of sin is, it is a personal offense. It is an infinitely uh, grievous uh, offense against an infinitely worthy God, uh, the, an infinite exchange. Um, so then, when we go back to what uh, Moses is saying in Exodus 34, 7, he is a God forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, Coupling with what Paul says in, in Romans 1, exchanging the creation, or the creator for the creation, even thinking of the context of Exodus 34, what just happened? Yeah, the same thing. What, what happened? What? They built a golden calf. In that case, they built a golden calf to represent who God was, but nonetheless, it ended up, in essence, being an exchange of the creator and how he gets to define himself for a, a man-defined, uh, created thing um, that even was purporting to represent God, but really wasn't. Um, you can think about that as just false religion, right? It's a man-created thing, and so there's that exchange happening. So even in the context of Exodus 34, where God says this, um, and, and says, this is what's tied to my character, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, well, the essence of sin was just seen with the golden calf incident, right? An infinite exchange... Uh, not just by one person, but by many people, and as we know, apart from Christ, all humanity, all the sons and daughters of Adam. So, let's think about these terms that get piled up in Exodus 34, 7. Iniquity. Each one of these has uh, iniquity, transgression, and sin. Each one of these has a little bit different uh, force to it. Uh, they're not talking about like, oh, that's sin and that's not, but just different ways of describing sin or even the severity of different kinds of sin. Uh, so iniquity has this idea of guilt. Uh, so you sin and you're guilty. Uh, and so this idea of iniquity is like uh, the state of guilt that res results, guilt before a holy God. Uh, transgression uh, has more of the, f the focus on uh, a defiance of authority. So where, you know, you might make uh, a mistake uh, or you might um, kind of, in a sense, unintentionally sin, you'd still be guilty. Leviticus is very clear. You're still guilty with an unintentional sin, even if you don't know. You're still guilty. But uh, the second term, transgression, is more defiance, right? It's high-handed um, rebellion um, against God. So you think about that. There's unintentional sin. There's intentional sin. There's defiance. Uh, and then he kind of just uses the general umbrella term sin. So all sin is wrong, whether intentional or unintentional, um, but he highlights guilt, he highlights rebellion, uh, which is what the Israelites just did with the golden calf, because they had explicit instructions not to do this in the ten, the ten words, uh, and, and sin. But God is saying, forgiving iniquity, forgiving guilt, forgiving rebellion, and forgiving sin. And he's tying this to his God's... God is proclaiming this as tied to his personal name. He's saying, here's who I am. 
and he says, I'm, I'm, I'm forgiving of these things. Now, let's just pause there for a minute. Why is that very, very, very surprising? Yeah, he's just. Yeah, he's just. So, like, wait, you have to deal with it, right? So there's the justice aspect, which we'll develop even more next week. But why else, given our whole kind of exploration of setting the backdrop to this? Why is this... He can't exist with sin, so what do you, you know, which kind of goes back to exactly what Brenda is saying, right? It's not only, like, this is wrong, like some abstract legal code, but there's a fundamental, like, you can't exist, you can't dwell with iniquity, so what are you doing? Forgiving it. Like, and and really the idea here of forgiveness, the word that's used here is bearing it. Like, um, like normally this verb is like you lift something up and carry it. And so the idea here, it is, is the idea of forgiveness, but it's like very visual, like you're bearing this, God is bearing this iniquity and transgression and sin, and he's bearing it away, right? So um, he can't dwell with this, but wait a minute, he's bearing it away, he's forgiving it. Uh, wh- why else is it surprising? Like for God to say, this is central to my character. Well, it's surprising because he can't dwell with it, but what else? Back to Romans 1, personal or impersonal? Very personal, right? This is not uh, like abstract kind of, oh, I'll just take care of that. This is like personal offense on multiple levels. uh, And God's saying, no, I forgive that. So this is very surprising, actually. So so when we just kind of hear this term, oh yeah, of course God is a forgiving God. But when you actually think about God's goodness and his um, purity and the nature of sin as being an offense in exchange against him, then it's actually very surprising that God would call himself a forgiving God and say, that's part of who I am at my core, is a forgiving God. Uh, In all types of iniquity, even up to the point of high-handed rebellion, transgression. Okay? Okay. Thoughts, questions, before we just kind of see in various scriptures how God manifests his, this, what he declares here. Just like we've done with the other attributes, he declares it. Well, let's see what does that look like uh, in that heart of God throughout the scriptures. Yeah, Bruce. Mm-hmm. And that's a good point to make because uh, forgiveness is a thing that is granted by the person offended, right? Like uh, oftentimes a metaphor in scripture for, for um, sin is a debt, right? And so um, you see this. We can go and go there. I was going to go there anyway. Go to Matthew 18. Oops the wrong way. And in Matthew 18, uh, Matthew 18 is this um, teaching section by Jesus to his disciples about how are you going to live and think about one another in community, in the really the new covenant community, the church that's being formed. 
Um, but uh, remember this, this. I'll go ahead and read it um, just to get us going. So 1823. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, he was brought with, to him... Uh, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents, which is like 200,000 years' wages, right? Um, so a ridiculous number. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a hundred days' wages. Uh, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servants fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from his heart. Now, the lesson there is forgiveness in the community. But think of the illustration of uh, a sin, whether human to human or God to human, both are in view in this case, is a debt. Well, someone's got to pay it. Like, the debt is there. The money's been spent. Um, so who's going to pay? But clear, So who, in the case where the, let's just stick with the case with the king, and he forgives the guy initially, the 10,000, the 200,000 years wages debt, you know, um, uh, who bore the cost? The king, right? Because the king just lost all of that that, um, that, that income. So if you think about that idea of what Bruce was mentioning, right, like uh, that's the decision of the, the offended to pardon or not pardon. But when the pardon happens, uh, that's being borne by the one offended. In this case, as we're talking about God being forgiving, uh, it's not cheap for God to forgive. Like he bears that expense. Um, and of course, we know um, and, and we'll talk about this more next week, but, um, and, and Brenda even brought it up, like, well, wait a minute, how can he clear that? How can you do that? Because we're not just talking about some abstract debt, we're talking about uh, a personal offense against a holy God. So how can, he, how can he possibly clear that? And we know the only answer is through Jesus, who uh, does bear and uh, experience the eternal weight of wrath that that, that payment deserves. So we know that that's the answer. But what happens, especially as you look at Exodus 34, and as we look at a few of these other passages that we will in a minute, just the, the, the Old Testament just says, yeah, God's going to forgive it, and doesn't explain how. And so just to focus on that idea that that's part of who God is, like God wants to forgive. There's an impulse, um, for lack of a better phrase, for God to forgive. And he said that, yeah, that's part of who I am as a character which is just kind of really surprising. Now, we know how Gail gets reconciled in the New Testament, but that's like, that's very surprising that God would have that impulse to, to forgive people. Um, okay, so let's, let's see a few other instances uh, of just displaying God's forgiving character. Go to Psalm 103. 
Psalm 103 and uh, 10 through 12. So I think we're, this is a Davidic psalm, yeah? Yes. Um, but David is celebrating and rejoicing over God's character. And as part of that, he highlights this in Psalm 103, 10 through 12. Someone go ahead and read that. Okay, so how does this describe God's forgiveness? Yeah, in what sense? What what pra- what phrase are you picking up on there, Rachel? It's trying to give you a visual picture of like, well, on one on one hand, the east from west imagery is like, all right, remember the idea of bearing sins away? Like that's a picture. That's that's like kind of the literal language that's being used for forgiveness in Exodus 34, bearing sins away. Well, here we get the picture of like, all right, we're going to take it away as far as the east was from the west, right? So it's gone, right? Um, you can't measure the distance between east and west, so it's it's gone. Uh, that offense has been removed. Um, now, the, the the height metaphor here, what's the height metaphor used in relation to? Not forgiveness, exactly, but what? Steadfast love, which we looked at already, right? God's loyal kindness. So God's loyal kindness is driving his, um, in this case, his uh, forgiveness. But that, that description of forgiveness is like, as far as from east is from the west. Uh, as far as you could possibly go, that's the separation from you, because that iniquity and that guilt and that sin inhered in you, and now it's been removed and it's been borne away as far as you could go. That imagery is actually used in the Day of Atonement. So the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, you've got the scapegoat, or really the goat of departing, and all of Israel's sins are confessed on that goat's head, and then it gets sent out into the desert, because it's portraying uh, removal of of sin, removal of, uh, of iniquity, like this kind of similar imagery to what's being used here in Psalm 103. Okay, let's see another one. Go to Micah. And Micah 7, very end of Micah, um, and, you know, Micah, the way Micah is structured as a book, it, you know, it's before exile, it's about the same time as Isaiah, and there's kind of these declarations of judgment, but then these promises of restoration. Um, and in connection with that, we get one, one of those promises of restoration, we get what is said in Micah 7, 18 through 20, the last three verses of Micah. And this is in relation to 
um, Israel, whose iniquities are taking it into exile. And God's going to punish those iniquities. But um, go ahead and read Micah 7, 18 through 20. Okay, so how does he piles up term talking about God's forgiveness of iniquity? How does he describe it? Like, what visual imagery does he use? Yeah, treading iniquities underfoot. It's like, um, I don't know, you think of like, you got a water balloon. I don't know if you ever, like as a kid, you had a water balloon and you like stomped on it and it's just like, gone, right? Um, uh, or just trampling under like some bug, nasty bug, right? That's just, all right annihilated, um, gone. Uh, what else? What other imagery does he use? Yeah, throwing into the depths of the sea. So you think of like, um, you know, I think even scripture consistently uses that idea of sin as weight. Uh, or like, yeah, Isaiah talks about uh, people dragging sin like, like, a, like a cart or like just this heavy load. And so you think about that heavy load and it's just, we're going to dump that into the bottom of the sea. Um, what else? He starts by talking about pardoning iniquity. What does he then say? Passing over transgression. So transgression is the same word, uh, at least I think it is here, um, for, you know, this is the high-handed sin sort of word, like rebellion, defiance. And God's just saying, I'm going to pass over that. Right? So it's just all these different imageries. It's like, wow, that's, that's astounding. Because again, God can't dwell with iniquity. And uh, it's personal against him. And yet he's saying, and we can, you know, the way the, the time frame Micah has written, um, Israel individually and as a nation is very wicked. And is going to go into exile because of his wickedness. But God's saying, hey, eventually, because of my covenant, that's really verse 20, faithfulness to Jacob, steadfast love to Abraham. He's alluding to the covenants with those folks. Like, uh, I'm actually going to forgive your sins as a nation. And the way he's describing it, I'm going to trample them underfoot. I'm going to throw it into the bottom of the sea. I'm going to uh, pass over your rebellion. Um, so again, it just, it's just piling up these terms in a surprising way, talking about God's impulse towards forgiveness. Um, you can see this in Jesus' ministry. Go to Matthew 9. So obviously Jesus is the Son of God incarnate. He, whoever sees Jesus sees the Father uh, in terms of his character, same character. Um, and... There's a couple places we could go. Uh, one is the sinful woman in Luke 7. We, we'll probably not go there this morning, but Luke 7, 36 through 50, that's another good one to look at. But we'll go to Matthew 9. Oops. Matthew 9, 1 through 7. So someone go ahead and read Matthew 9, 1 through 7.
Oh, I'm sorry, Matthew 9, 1 through 7. Or 9, 1 through 8, really. Someone read Matthew 9, 1 through 8. Okay, so Jesus forgives this guy's sins, but what's surprising about it? Not what he's been asking for. No, <laughs> yeah, like his friends and him, they come, and they're dropping him through the roof, right? Um, and, and then, like, he drops down right there, and he, at least there's no explicit ask for forgiveness of sins, right? But what does Jesus do? What's his impulse, so to speak. I don't know if that's quite the right, but, but Jesus just takes the initiative and says, your sins are forgiven, right? And so again, you see that kind of impulse that's part of God's character, in this case manifested through Jesus, to forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, to actually deal with the bigger problem than the paralysis, although he's going to heal the paralysis here um, shortly, um, and, and use it as a way of saying, see, I can forgive sins too, um, but, uh, the surprising aspect of it is he didn't ask, <laughs> um, it's just this impulse to forgive sin. So again, that surprising aspect of when we see in Exodus 34, uh, again, we're, we automatically go and say, oh, well, of course we know God can do that because of Christ. Well, that is absolutely true, but you have to understand that kind of mystery of, um, Old Testament. And yeah, you get the, the picture of atonement that's going to, allow for the forgiveness of sins through the sacrificial system. But just, God doesn't bring any of that up when he's talking about Exodus 34. He just says, here's who I am. Here's, here's what I tie to my name, Yahweh. I'm a God who forgives those very deep and personal offenses against me, and in fact, those things that I can't dwell with. I forgive those. And it is intensely surprising and interesting. God has an impulse in, in, in connected with his character to do that. Um, so that's, and obviously we've talked about, well, there's intention to that because how does they dwell? I mean, how does that, how can we reconcile those two? And in fact, we're going to heighten that tension next week when we look at the next uh, item in the list in Exodus 34. But that's what I want, what I want you to see, that, that readiness, that impulse to forgive. Um, even apart from the explanation of how does that just, that impulse to um, clear iniquity. Um, how does this help you? Um, what does this do for your heart? Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. What else? Mm-hmm. 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 Sure. When you think about, like, you're, uh, as Christians, we still sin, right? We know that, right? And each of those times, whether as an unbeliever or a believer, that's a personal offense against God, right? That's slapping him in the face, spitting on our Father. Um, and yet, um, this aspect of God's character uh, allows us to approach him when we're, we're we know and recognize, I, uh, I feel stained, I feel dirty, right? That idea of iniquity, right? I'm guilty. How can I come? Um, I, I'm re- I, not only have I been guilty, I've been rebellious, right? Uh, I've, I've sinned high-handedly. Against knowledge, I've sinned. Uh, I knew what I was doing, and I did, did it anyway. And yet, like, so how, how can God accept me? How can God even, even, but what do we come back to? Well, ultimately, we're coming back to the gospel and what Christ has done. Yes, but what I want you to see is Exodus 3, 4, that impulse in God's character. Like, he wants to forgive. Uh, he's, not, he's not holding you at arm's length, um, saying, uh, you know, clean yourself up. No, he's like, I'm the one who's going to bear your iniquity. I'm going to bear the cost. I'm going to fix it, and you need to... Um, come to me. Now, we know he does that through Christ and the atonement that, on the cross, but um, that should just warm our affections. And even, hopefully, that helps you as we think about communion this morning, right? Um, that is a very visual portrayal of uh, Christ's atonement to save us individually and then to bind us together into a people, uh, but to purchase our forgiveness. So, hopefully, that helps prepare you for the morning a little bit as we go. Yeah, Bruce. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Even when, so, you know, we've talked about a couple times in, in church about forgiveness of others, and God's forgiveness is conditional, right? Uh, repentance and faith, there's a condition. Um, uh, but what you see, even with Jesus, right, is there's a readiness. There's a readiness to forgive. So even us, people who have sinned against us, they haven't asked for forgiveness. I can't really make that transaction yet because they haven't asked for it. But I sure have a readiness. I'm, I'm willing. I, I want that transaction to happen because of how much God has forgiven us. So, yeah. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you that this is part of your character, that you are not, not like the pagan gods who need to be appeased in the sense of uh, people need to fix it themselves, um, need to bring, do the right amount of penance, um, do the right amount of um, works or offerings to, so then you, you then tolerate. Lord, we know that none, nothing we could do would um, assuage, um, would, would satisfy your wrath. Only, only, Jesus, um, only Jesus could do that. Only um, the Son sacrificed, um, your, uh, your one and only Son sacrificed um, to, to 
to purchase the removal of guilt, the removal of sin, the removal of iniquity. And Lord, we praise you. We thank you that that, um, I pray that I'm using the right term, impulse from your character. Um, Just thank you that that's part of who you are and how you declare yourself to be. And Lord, that is our hope. And thank you that we can come this morning as as sinners, forgiven sinners, um, to rejoice, to sing your praises, to hear your word preached. And there's even hope of, as we hear your commands, that you enable us to obey even when we falter, O Lord God. You forgive our falterings and our fumblings, and you enable us, though, to obey, and you are pleased with our obedience. Lord, prepare our hearts for worship this morning. Help us. And uh, may you receive all the honor and all the glory. Uh, We do not want to exchange you for the creation. We want to be fully oriented and devoted to you, our creator. We ask these things and pray them in the name of Jesus. Amen.